What's up, guy? What is up, guy? Welcome back to Josue. Has to say, if you're new here, I am Josue, and this is what I have to say. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to remind you to please like, hit, smash that like button, comment, not comment, share, do all the things, as it does help the episode grow, and if the episode on the podcast grow, and if you ain't growing, you're you rotten. Today's episode, I am in a room filled with, filled with three writers. You letting us know straight out the gate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> Trigger warning. We got two newbies. We got a returning star here. Salome. Third time. Third time. You Third might be my time. most recurring guest. Either you that. or Jordan, my boy. Okay, I got to compete. So you got to come yeah. back. Yeah. One of you has to come for the fourth and <laughs> right. see who like. Salome Sibonek, welcome back. And the newbies, we got Jake Klein. Sorry, I just spit all over you. That's all right. Thanks for having me. He baptized. And my boy Andy, aka Andrew Jackson. Yes, sir. Can my we talk about that for a second? My name is a hate crime, I think. <laughs> um, it's better than being named Michael, I guess. Uh, Fair know, enough. I was born in the 80s, so, you know, yeah. This is true. So today's episode is really about a plethora, a myriad of topics. They all kind of uh, dive into one another. These three are very prolific writers, and I feel that they are in tune with the culture and with the happenings and around the world. So I think they have very unique, uh, unique perspectives and are brilliant in their own regard. So yeah, let's dive right in. I mean, for the for the viewers that don't know who you are, if you want to give another little intro and then just go around the room. Yeah, so I'm Salome Sibone. I'm a writer, speaker. I work with Foundation for Economic Education, which is a libertarian nonprofit. I help to do the creative direction for one of their programs, Revolution of One, which is all about bringing the ideas of freedom and free thinking and just free living to younger people and particularly minorities that don't often get that message, like myself, didn't hear about libertarianism for a while and um yeah. yeah yeah and then eventually i heard about it and i was like that kind of makes sense <laughs> so that i'm also a writer of a newsletter which we'll talk about a little bit later but you can always find all my work social media writing all the art i do at my website salomesibone.com amazing jake um, I am a writer and a filmmaker nice. um, for writing i primarily write op-eds <coughs> on um, political issues. I'm also a libertarian, um, but also on the broader uh, issues surrounding individualism and where that affects culture. So things like identity politics and, um, um, you know, like um, uh, ethnicity and stuff like that. So um, I also do films uh, where uh, I'm doing a lot for web right now, but I did a feature film a couple of years ago. I executive produced a film called No Safe Spaces, which starred Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, and a web series on libertarian thought called The Politically Incorrect Guide, um, which you can find by searching for that. Um, so yeah, that's me. Awesome. Andy? Uh, my name is Andy Jackson. I am a professional copywriter, script writer, um, travel writer, travel content creator, and I'm not a libertarian. Um, so I'm here to get out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm making three stuff. against one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm claiming this spot for, for the non-libertarians. Um, and yeah, my, my passion is writing about culture, travel, um, how the two kind of blend together. Uh, and you know, my kind of purpose and goal in all my writing and all my content creation is to encourage people to not just travel more, but to explore, uh, different parts of their self through other cultures and other ways of looking at things. And so I'm really fascinated to talk to people that don't necessarily have the same ideas as me 
because I I like the idea of of, of breaking down these ideas in com- respectful conversation, and that's that's kind of my goal in life, and I I do that through writing and and videotaping and talking about travel. So well, how else would you grow and expand, right? Your mind, your beliefs, and your thoughts if you don't, you know, challenge them with other people. You just stay stuck in the same fucking loop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's easy to stay st- stuck mm-hmm. in the loop. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of a uh, a big hurdle, I think, that we have to deal with uh, as not just in our society, but in most, at least Western societies. So actually, that's a perfect segue into the flock and... The black sheep, I yes. believe. So I did read your your little uh, Substack. I think it was. Yeah. And that's really the, the first topic that we want to talk about is, you know, segueing from what he said, is the flock versus the black sheep. I myself personally have known, am, and have always known that I am the black sheep of my family. Right. And it's funny because I've had this conversation with several friends where all of the people that I am close to are the black sheep of their family. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have people around me that are, I mean, maybe some, but they're definitely the outliers. The majority and the closest ones are black sheep like myself, and I feel like we all, like, identify mm-hmm. with one another. And I probably, I don't know you that well, I met you today, but I would assume maybe you are also, you know, a black sheep of your family. I think that you are, so. Yeah, a loved yeah. black sheep, but definitely, definitely one. There you disagree <laughs> on about yeah. everything of substance. <laughs> so there you go. Um, yeah, it's a really common experience around people that I get along with very well. I think there's something about the perspective of just being really a contrarian in some regards, mm-hmm. willing to question things, willing to say, yes. mm, I don't, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, wanting to get into the, the nuance of that, um, that kind of puts you at odds with some people. I know that for me growing up, I was really difficult for my parents, whether it was religion. I pushed back on religion. Um, They were Christians, and I was pretty quickly, like, an atheist in terms of just, like, questioning, just thinking, "Mm, I don't know, that doesn't sound right. I want to go against this. I want to find a different way to look at it. It's not not making sense to me. Um, And then I've been that in terms of my entire life path rather than do what most of my peers my age did, which is immediately go to college, immediately get a job, immediately get a house, immediately get their marriage, kids. I did a path that I don't even know how to describe. I mean, I went to college a little bit on and off. I traveled around forever. I started doing house sitting for like years where I would just live in different places as a house sitter. And I've been doing that for like, a while up until just recently and you know it's kind of the path that people normally will be like you do what like you don't have a house are you homeless and it's like yeah kind of but actually it's really great um and then you know not having a traditional career also kind of making my own way as a writer which was just deciding to start a newsletter one day and just write not going to school for writing not getting a job as a journalist or as a um, you know like a a regular writer for a publication just kind of doing it myself and getting into the content creation game on social media I did that fairly early um, where I would share more in-depth stories in my captions rather than just post like here's my lunch and then move (laughs) on So I've always kind of done things a little bit different and never in an intentional way. It's never like, I'm like, I'm going to be different. It's more just like, I don't, I don't want to do it that way. Like I just, I feel called to do it in a different way. And, um, a lot of the time that's gotten me, um, 
questioned a lot by my parents, particularly. They thought for a while that um, this girl is not going to be okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like she's not going to make it. Like, what what are you doing now? Like, where are you living? Where are you going next month again? You're going to live in Dominica for three months in a house of, that someone else is giving you to take care of? Like, what are you yeah. doing? Traditional Cuban parents are like, this, she's, yeah, she's not like, well. She's to, unwell. She's unwell. Do you feel like tamalita. Even the word contrarian has like a negative statement mm -hmm. to it. It does. Because when you said I'm a contrarian, that's the first thought I said. Is negative. Yeah. I, I've never right. heard a self-described contrarian in a positive way. Because that's always been you. In my experience, it's always been used to say, oh, you're being a contrarian. Right. Mm -hmm. You're disagreeing for the sake of disagreeing. Mm -hmm. And I, I always found that to be dismissive. It's like, you know, I'm disagreeing for the sake of trying to agree, figuring it out. Yes. Mm -hmm. Not for the sake of disagreeing. If you're disagreeing for the sake of disagreeing, you don't have a purpose for it. Right. And that's the, the, the contrarian aspect. Yeah, I definitely agree like that they're uh, not like putting contrarianism aside for a minute to agree with you. Sure. Um, I do think that there's like two ways to do that, right? Which is like the kind of like annoying negative contrarianism where you're just disagreeing for the sake of disagreeing purely and in an annoying way, which is like you won't even grant the fact that maybe there is something valid there because um, that can actually take you away from the truth. Like healthy contrarianism, which I do feel that I have like that um, element in me, especially now more, I've like trained that to always look for a second interpretation of things. Um, that kind of contrarianism can be really healthy because it does exactly what this black sheep concept does, which I'll talk about more, which is kind of like provide a counterbalance to the dominant narrative, the dominant culture, whatever the dominant story is. You know, you have someone that's going to say, but what if it was like this? So you had a great quote. Uh, the flock is indispensable for maintaining an advanced society, but the black sheep is indispensable for creating one. And I thought that right. was really a really good way to put it. And I was like, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And you see that in a lot, like in the arts, you see that in the sciences. Um, if you just saw Oppenheimer, that's a great example of someone that was like pushing a different view of physics. I think his whole, now, not that I don't know anything about physics, but like in the movie, he's talking about quantum physics, right? Is that what it is? And, and there's like, I think it was in Germany and a lot of physicists were like, no, that's not, what is this guy talking about quantum physics? You know, that's not real. Whereas he was like, no, there's a different way to look at this. Like you, it, there's something else here. And he didn't really have like that much, um, uh, admiration for that at the time because it was new. You know, he was looking at physics in a different way. And so, but he had something there. And so that instinct to be like, I think there's a different way to look at this. What if we, what if we did it like this? What if we look at it like this? That's like that, like healthy contrarian instinct that can make you a black sheep because you're by nature of being a black sheep, looking at things differently, looking for a different way to do things. It just comes natural to you. Yeah. It's not yeah, a, a yeah. forced or anything. It's, yeah. That's why I think it's very much like almost kind of an archetype, right? Where you just, it's this way of being. And I think that's why like we all resonate with this idea because it's not like um, some kind of political ideology that it's like, oh, I just read about this and I agree with these policies. Like it's more just, that is exactly how I have felt for a really long time. I think that most people have an instinct to conform to social groups. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they just want to feel safe and like a part of the community and stuff like Accepted. that. Accepted. Right. And for the most part, that's really healthy. It's certainly necessary <laughs> because otherwise you would have complete societal dysfunction. Yeah. However, there are, is value, especially at the societal level, to having people that just don't feel that mm-hmm. instinct to conform yeah. very much and are willing to just experiment with radical ideas. Contrarianism gone too far is just edginess. And I think that is what you're saying. Like yeah. when most people say the word contrarian, that is what they mean just people who are being edgy for the sake of being edgy or for the sake of getting a reaction out of something. Mm. yes oh, but the other end of that is like you should always be willing to play devil's advocate with yourself yes right like always challenge like what am i taking for granted and what the community around me thinks and then to be able to challenge the community around you with, whoa, you haven't thought about this right because you've all been conforming to each other. That can bring really necessary change into the broader group if you're successful and don't get right. shut down, which is the challenge of being the black sheep. It's the biggest challenge because the hurdle to self-criticism or criticizing your own group is your own group at, at, you know, uh, pushing ostracizing, right. ostracizing you. So essentially, you become a black sheep, and then a black sheep of the black sheep. <laughs> yeah. So you're like, oh, great. So now, what am I? What am I now? You know, I'm not accepted yeah. by the others. I'm not accepted by my own. And so the incentive structure is to always belong. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel that I, I believe that incentives are everything. So for most human beings, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to fight incentives. Mm-hmm. And sometimes fighting incentives is a, uh, not fighting incentives is a survival skill. So you could say, look, I can push push back against this, but it's going to make my life so miserable, I might not survive through it. And so at that point, you're a secret black sheep. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I think that has everything to do with our obsession with I- identity, ideology, and, and tribalism, how we group that together. Yeah, I feel like people have become really intolerant of that black sheep figure where it's just someone that's like, ah, you know, I'm going to do this my own way. Like, ah, no, this doesn't make sense for me. Like, what if we did it like this? Or just, like, has a different way of being. Um, I mean, not that that has ever been super accepted. You know, by the nature of what a group, what a herd is, they're they're a self-preservation, there's a self-preservation element there that's like, we're going to make it a little hard for you to question us because that's how we stay intact, Right. So like a religion or things like this is a great example of a group that kind of polices itself. And the black sheep effect specifically where I take this concept from is that people who question the group from within the group or Mm. from very close to the group are the ones that get more heat than people who question from without. Always. So like a Christian or an ex-Christian criticizing Christianity is going to get it way harder from Christians than like a Muslim or or a Buddhist or an atheist, you know, because it's like, well, you're already so out there. We already know you're like wrong. But if you were with us and you're questioning, you're a threat. They're more dangerous to the group. Exactly. There's sometimes an existential danger to the group Mm -hmm. Um, because if your group is kind of on a flimsy ideological right. foundation and you're questioning from within you could you could break down the whole structure of the group so you become an existential threat and therefore you you don't belong to the group anymore yeah and i think that you can apply that to a lot of things in our culture and our politics um across the board you know, if, you, if you're a democrat and you uh criticize biden the first you know I'm, I'm a registered democrat i voted for biden i'm gonna vote for him again and if i criticize him i'd never get people saying well, that's a good idea, mm. you know, or, or oh, I didn't think about it that way. They go, well, the other guy, it's like, <laughs> like, <laughs> what about ism kills creativity? It cr- kills intelligent thought. And right? it's so, bad for the group. 
Sure, because, because you can't say like, hey, but, you know, we could ask for more yeah. in our own group. We could do better because they interpret any type of criticism of that group as destructive and dangerous. Well, I think the opposite. I would add to that that I had, I've had this argument before. I actually think you should criticize your own group because I'm going to vote for this right. guy. Right. I'm not going to vote for the other guy. So I can sit in my bedroom thinking of all the criticism about the guy I'm not going to participate yeah, in making exactly. president. But I'd rather focus on the one that I want to make president. Go, if I'm going to vote for this guy, i got to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Because right. I'm not going to live with myself if I, if I believe not. So you self-criticism. Constructive, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, more, it's more rewarding to the group. That's what you're saying. But the group doesn't reward you for it. It's so complicated, right. though, because I do see the other side of that, where political mobilization is so important, and you can't undermine your own candidate. Mm. Right. right. If everybody you know, on a political team is focused on, well, here's the problem. Tearing with, him down, yeah. Yeah, with whatever candidate, then they tear him down and nobody's passionate about voting well, for this person. But that's where that balance comes in, right? That right. you spoke mm -hmm. about. You have to be careful as to how black sheepish you yeah. get, effectish you get. You right. can't be all like an extreme or you can't just be like super agreeing. You know what I mean? Like it right. has to be like this uh, healthy, mindful kind of practice of it. It's an interaction. Yeah. And I think it's an interaction that's kind of um, in a weird spot right now in our culture because I think um, at least within certain certain groups, they really, w I mean, it, this has always been how it is, but I, it depends how susceptible we are to it. I think when people weaponize morality to be yeah. like, you are bad and we're going to exile you from the group and we're going to tarnish you as a bad person and then you will have no one, that really shuts people up. Especially if it's like, we're going to come for your job. We're going to come for your family. We're going to, you know, attack your reputation within the community that you depend on to have a livelihood, to have a life. That's a real good way to get people to just keep their questions to themselves. Mm. And, you know, that's unfortunate because there has to be some space for the contrarian to say, yeah, but what if what if we did it differently? What if this is not good enough? Right. What if there's something we could do as a group together that could push us forward? When it becomes so rigid, where there's no room for any kind of like pushback and um and and, and novelty and discovery that that kind of black sheep figure brings, it actually ends up killing the group in the long run yeah. because they become stale and so rigid, and rigid things break. There's a funny, there's a funny um, realization that I came about when reading your article, and I don't know if you guys already knew this, but it was new to me. So I'll read the excerpt. It was, the black sheep and the flock are like the left and right leg fighting for dominance, but both are integral parts of the same system. It's the black sheep that, that nudge the flock forward into a new territory and deviate enough to discover what will become new norms, like electric cars, women, education, and yes, a few failures too, like reality TV. So that made me think... Think about current culture. Mm. At one point in time, the stereotypical left-wing, blue-haired, pansexual <laughs> was the black sheep. Right. And now they're the flock. Right. Yeah. Look at how it's become like cyclical. Yeah. Now, if you're not blue-haired and pansexual and whatever the fuck, yeah. <laughs> you're the black sheep, apparently. When before right. it was like, if you weren't a Bible-thumping Christian or something exactly. like that. Look were. at free speech advocacy. I'm, I'm about to turn 42. When I grew up, Free speech was a tenet of liberalism. Yes. It was the core tenet of liberalism. It's actually the thing that pushed me into American traditional liberalism because it was, you know, Tipper Gore trying to take mm -hmm. rap music right. off the shelves. And you're like, you know, no, it's this, the, the foundation of America is free speech. Mm -hmm. You don't have a right to not be offended, right? You, you don't. Uh, I have a right to say whatever the fuck I want to say, right? And then 
at some point <laughs> that shifted. And, and, and it was like, right. Right. And it's like, what, like I can't kind of pinpoint, I'm sure you can, <laughs> if, if you produce it, because I think Dennis Prager probably could. And if, if I, free speech is popular when you don't have it. Right. right? <laughs> and, and, you, and you want it. And there's yeah. people like us, you know, who we understand the philosophy enough to be principled defenders of free speech. And then there's the masses of people that we're trying to influence to take our side. And they are biased to take our side when they feel that they're, you know, not able to be free. And they're biased against our side when they feel other people's speech is harmful to their position. So I think it's just like you said earlier, incentives matter. And if you're not one of those people that came to it through really principled means, and you may have gotten to those principled means, in fact, you probably did because of the original incentive of yeah. it supporting you, but then you you did the learning, you really thought it through, you, you came to a consistent thought pattern. And then when the setting around you changes, it's ingrained in you and you stand still. But if you're not one of those people that really thought about it deeply, you'll just keep blowing with the winds. And that's scary because yeah. Yeah. you should think about it deeply. If you're going to hold, these are like critical things to society, right? Free speech isn't something, I, I think we, we dilute it a bit the way we talk about it. Like a lot of things, because we over talk about it and we describe free speech as, most people don't understand the concept of free speech. So most people will say, okay, well, the defense is always constitutionally the government's not going to stop you. But if you say something that's not cool, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your friends, you're going to lose your house. So the government's not doing that. But but the, the value of free speech is not there. If culturally you can lose everything by saying one or two wrong words, mm -hmm. then we don't value free speech anymore collectively yeah. as a culture. And that paves the way for the government then eventually to legislate against free speech. 100%. Because once you don't right. have the desire in the culture to laws. defend free speech, <laughs> you know, the government's going to be like, hey, you know what, I really don't like my opponent candidate speaking so openly about my past grievances and mistakes. Uh, let's pass some laws to fix that. And there's no cultural desire for free speech. So then people would just be like, yeah. And, and that that, that's the end. And that paves the way perfectly for our next topic, American privilege. You see how great it's like? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like you've done this before. <laughs> it's almost like I've done this before. <laughs> um... Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I think that Americans, at least, we're we're not we're in a stage of American know, democracy where, free, like you said, free speech is kind of tossed around, but no one really grasps how mm. unique it is to the United States and how privileged people have been. Um, I usually fight with people on my Instagram or on my TikTok or what or the other accounts. Uh, that you know they they stay on the whole oh, oppression train and we're so oppressed like motherfucker you're not fucking oppressed like you don't know what oppression truly is you know what I'm trying to say uh, there's there's no oppression there's if anyone is oppressed in the United States then we're all equally and collectively oppressed by the one percent by the corporations by the government there are no groups that are oppressed we're not all equal absolutely not there's biases there's still racism there's homophobia there's all those things in a truly free country you have these things because it's it's freedom I, I, you, unless you're enacting harm on someone you can say whatever the fuck you want you can be whatever in a truly free country once you start cracking down on that then it's no longer a free country it's the good the bad and the ugly so i don't really believe there are oppressed groups in the united states if anyone's oppressed we're all fucking oppressed together by the top, the top tier i kind of agree 
I think there is. I think how we define oppression is on a scale. So I don't. I disagree that there are. I, I think there are oppressed people in the United States, but I think the level of oppression is different than how we categorize oppression outside of the United States or how we categorize past oppression in the United That's States. That's fair. So if we're going to say, and this is a, this is a reflection of not accepting that things have gotten better, right? So uh, things for black people in 2023 are better than they were in 1983, in 1963, in 1950. You keep going, going, going. Things have gotten better. But it doesn't mean that there still isn't Tra- there aren't traces of oppression, but is that a pressure or inequality? Because well, they're not inequality the same, they're driven not- by past oppression. It's a, it's a mindset. The racism is based on oppression. Racism doesn't exist without oppression. Without oppression, racism is just prejudice. So if. Uh, so i've written a book on this topic which is is not out uh yet but keep your eyes peeled so it's called redefining racism how racism became power plus prejudice so i track that definition of the word racism and how that came about where it requires more than just prejudice or discrimination you know on the basis of race but you know requires actual power um, if you look in the dictionary, it's pretty clear that prejudice or discrimination based on race or something approaching that was um, the normal definition of the word racism, uh, racism or racialism, which is the word that um, preceded that. Um, and then race, just linguistically racism became the more popular term. Um, and still in the dictionary today, that, that's the way it is. But starting in the year 1970, a group of white activists um, inspired by explicit Marxists and black nationalists, um, particularly this guy named Stokely Carmichael, who was a very yeah, popular yeah, father of the black power movement. Um, he ends up um, moving to Africa to you know, with the goal of starting a pan-African communist black ethno-state, becomes friends with Idi Amin, renames himself Kwame Ture after two Marxist African dictators who, you know, mass-murdered their political opponents. So these white activists, you know, in the city of Detroit were trying to take that philosophy and teach it to other white people. And so they wanted people to think about racism in the context of this sort of Marxist power struggle. And so that's what that definition comes out of. And I I think it's really unhelpful for just a a whole ton of reasons. Um, Reason one being that it's not equal grounds, right? Like if we're just being bad to each other, I mean, that is going to extend into situations where the power dynamics are different. First of all, the idea that we're just going to look at this in a societal level, like the idea that white people are going to have power in America at all times, just simply isn't true. Like walk into a black neighborhood, a black school, if you're a white person, you're not going to have power there. You know, uh, we have a friend, uh, his, his name is Alex, who... Um, you know, grew up in the Chicago area as a really poor uh, white kid where he was the only white kid in an all-black school, right? Was who had the, you know, who had the power there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, these dynamics will always constantly be shifting. Would we consider that oppressed in that setting? I I I um, you know? I mean it depends Same on the question. specifics. I, I can't speak to his story, but I wouldn't say that the dynamic itself of of those demographics is inherently oppression. But mm-hmm. you know who has the power there 
you know, it, it's different than looking at the broad societal level right. of yeah, yeah. You know, white people have Doesn't more frequency power, so. have something to do with that, though, too? As in, like, I understand what you're saying about the, the t- defining the term and redefining the term, but how do we look at a modern version of what racism means versus a few hundred years of, 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 the, of that power structure really defining what, what racism was? Me- meaning, if we're going to redefine the term, uh, how do we re- redefine the term without blowing off the, what happened in the past as far as... Well, but I don't see what's um, being blown off. I mean, the transatlantic slave trade and the segregation that you know grew out of it after the abolition of slavery is like clearly horrible and clearly racism. I mean, it's just not the only kind of racism. I mean, slavery is bad because slavery is bad, not just because it's racist. Sure, you could yeah. be enslaving white people yeah. as yeah, happened yeah, yeah, yeah. in other places Across in the world, world. Right. and that would be awful too. That'd um, be also racist. Uh, not necessarily, not if it wasn't done on racial grounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's white-on-white slavery where it's, it's tribal-based, or it's not or even that. It's just, whatever, yeah. this is a prisoner who we've now chosen yeah. to enslave or whatever. But, you know, the transatlantic slave trade um, was made worse by racism and chattel slavery. Um, but, you know, I don't think that keeping a consistent definition of racism as being prejudice or discrimination based on skin color, based on race... Um, in any way diminishes the horrible forms that racism took in, in Jim Crow That's and in slavery. Idea. I actually agree with that. I think if you are a person and you judge somebody based on their race, whether you have power over them or not, that is racist. Where I disagree with is that I think that a lot of the foundations of American racism were built in that power structure. And so in my mind... Yeah. I have to look. I, I have to take things. It's a caveat to me, where it's like, sure, you're, you're the white kid in the black school. You're going to get picked on, but th- that doesn't really match up at the same equitable level as up in you know through the 1970s. Even in Boston, you have ra- school racial segregation. That's purely based on that's a power dynamic, mm-hmm. and the government has to step in and say. Now you have to you have to integrate. Oh, but it's not an oppression dick measuring contest either. Like, Sorry. does that you just said something in the nineteen seventies that that still doesn't apply? Like, it's not that's not the modern world we live in. But those those the, the sure, effects happens. of that still trickle through. Yeah, that, but to what to what frequency? But I would also introduce another thing that is like that complicates this for me, which is if you look at um, a lot of immigrants from African countries into the United States now, they do very well, like Nigerians specifically as a as a like immigrant class Mm -hmm. do a lot better economically in the United States than like um, black Americans born here. And you could say that being born in the United States in and of itself is a privilege um, rather than having to immigrate, right? Because you could make the case that immigration is in and of itself kind of a handicap. You're coming into a culture and a legal system that you're unfamiliar with, and so that can put you at a disadvantage. But then you have these groups that are considered black, but still outperform different cultures. Yeah, and so it's like, okay, is it racism that holds back black Americans in certain regards if you can have Nigerian immigrants come into this country and, you know, earn high salaries and that, kind of I, mobilize very quickly as, you know, within one or two generations, they do quite well. Yep. So I, I think there's a, a real problem with <coughs> disaggregating. Like, what, um, in terms of the outcomes that we see, is the result of past racism, past oppression, and what is just 
you know, something else. Yeah. And mm. we shouldn't be just making the assumption that it was racism just because there was horrible racism. I think the Nigerian data point is a great data point, but also there could be, you know, other other factors there. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that that completely disproves, um, you know, the, the legacy impact of, um, of racism. What that's called, though, uh, to, to bring it back, is, you know, there's a term systemic racism. Yeah. yeah. Right? Which is an abused, which an is overused term. It's a weaponized term. I, I think that's an actual... Right. I, that's exactly where I was going to yeah. go with that. But what I also know about that is that, um, you know, that term is basically identi identical to the term institutional racism. Another weaponized and, term, yeah. And, and, so how, and how, would, term, how would you separate the, uh, and, the two? The, those systemic and institutional, institutional I wouldn't. They're, they're the identical. Same, right. it's, it's they mean just, the same yeah. thing. Yeah, right. and the term institutional racism was invented by Stokely Carmichael. Yeah. And so if you view it in that context of a, a Marxist um, oppressed and oppressor um, dynamic, then what does it mean for an institution to be racist? It doesn't mean slavery or Jim Crow within that framework, or it doesn't mean exclusively that, where there is a racist person in the system making decisions <laughs> based on yeah. racial guidelines. Right. Instead, it means, you know, we don't have the Marxist, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, that sort of like perfect equality of outcome and anything else, any institutions that don't provide that, that e those equal outcomes can be called institutional institutionally racist, which is, la which is inherently lazy, systemic racism. Right. And so it's lazy, but that's what those terms, you know, meant from the beginning. It's and, and, and so it's, it's really just, you know, when we're talking about who is oppressed in the United States, we can't use that sort of Marxist or like postmodernist, like, oh, the default is somehow that everybody would be equal. Right, That's right, not otherwise. necessarily the case. And so we always have to disaggregate. We can't just see unequal groups and assume that we know the cause of that inequality. So this is an important point that's like clarifying for me um, because, you know, I struggled with that like question to myself, which is like, okay, like, how do you grapple with a history that clearly puts people at a disadvantage, like for a specific uh, demographic, right? So like black Americans, you know, have, it, you, if you can link their history back to like laws and practices that literally <coughs> held them back, yep. how do you, um, you know, grapple with that when you look at inequality now? Because, you know, you could very well say, well, like their lack of home ownership or lower lower ten tendency to have lower income or all Education, the number of issues that, that there yeah. can be in, you know, in black American communities, you could link it back to like, well, they started out at a disadvantaged place. Um, and so it's like, how do you grapple with that? And I think part part of what has been helpful for me is to understand um, libertarianism's answer to this, which is um, that, yeah, not every inequality is always malicious not every inequality is necessarily something that went wrong that we need to solve and not every inequality is something that we can immediately chalk up to like one outcome because that th it requires you starting from this premise of, of saying that 
the correct way for society to be is for all of us to be equal. And if yeah. we are not yeah. all having the same outcomes, then there is something wrong that we need to solve. And there's an interesting example that kind of illustrates why this is not a, a, con a constructive premise to start with, which is like the Nordic countries and their disparity between the sexes in certain traditional female jobs. So they've worked really hard to kind of reduce sexism and, you know, create equal access for women to have like STEM jobs and like traditionally masculine jobs. But they've only had the opposite happen they actually have more disparity between men and women in these traditionally female or masculine Why jobs because women like to do they don't, traditional they don't want female they don't want, jobs they don't want them women want to do jobs female that are like jobs, working yeah. in in uh, pre-k and like teaching right. and well, like it's, it's nursing. that old trope we want more female doctors but where are women fight there's no female garbage Right, 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 exactly. Coalition, yeah. right? <laughs> and it's not inequality. It's right. not like, well, it is inequality, right? It is inequality that there are not 50% women garbage disposal workers and 50% men. But is it bad inequality? No, it's is not. it wrong well, you that there are you not can't 50 measure, women You can't measure by outcome. Workers. You have to measure by opportunity. Is right. the opportunity yeah. there to be taken if they want it? Well, equity, they want equity it. versus equity. equality, right? Right. right? Equality of outcome right. is insane. Right. It's, it's, it's totally, impossible. Which is why it's insane. Mm -hmm. It's because like, hey, it's there, but it's you're a, accountable it's a, if you want it. It's, a, know, it's yeah. a fantasy sold to people to make them, them feel better about themselves. Equality of opportunity really should be like a pinnacle goal of most societies yeah. going look not all the baby sea turtles are going to make it to the ocean mm. but give them at least the same starting point right. yeah right i use the term uh, equality of opportunity a lot too but let me let me black sheep that oh my god um, also which is <laughs> can't be mad at it which you know, is, we, can't be, we can't be upset at it you're not, no, you're not no, no, allowed the quintessential as, as black against the rules of this conversation so i mean uh we'll never all have equal opportunity either and that's right. kind of laughable in a sense too we all have different abilities yeah we have you know a different genetic makeup. I don't want to say everything's about genes, but we've had different life experiences. Yeah. That also. all plays a part, right? Not just which are just like, you know, mm. poor and rich, but yeah. they've just gone through different things mm -hmm. that are going to change the opportunities that are um, well, in front of us. Sports is always the great example to demonstrate. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, you know, so what I think is most important, and w when I say equality of opportunity, which is a term I used to, what I mean is opportunity under the law, equality mm. under the law. There should be no hindrances, right? right? Um, and that's sort of the libertarian worldview as opposed to the left liberal worldview, the worldview of, like, John Rawls, is that, you know, we need to give people things mm. so that they have equal opportunity. We need to correct for, like, this natural state of things where mm. just people have different abilities and will rise and succeed in, in different ways. Completely agree. That's a loop too, back, too far back, but to go back to American, specifically American privilege, it's something I, I talked to Josue about, you know, before we arrived, is that um, as some, I've lived in four countries. And as an American, you know, I, I started when I was younger. I spent a total of 11 years abroad. And one thing I learned is that as, as an American, you go abroad with this thing like, I'm going to, you know, things are better here, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah, the food tastes sure, better in Italy. Sure. The women are cuter in Buenos Aires. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, <laughs> the, the beaches are bigger in Panama. It's like you, you go into it like that and then you realize you actually start respecting a lot of the things that you take for granted mm -hmm. about the United States. And you start to understand how patriotic, um, and that's a loaded term too, but how patriotic <laughs> 
a lot of immigrants in America are, where you yes. where you see they value the things here because they don't have those opportunities where they come from. And that's going back to the Nigerian point. Mm. It's like they're, you know, Nigerian in America could do things that they literally can't do in Nigeria. So it's like, we're going to give you the option to not be held back, right. run with it. Mm -hmm. And they're like, let's go. The yeah. whole city of Miami with Latin Americans mm -hmm. is a, Great example of yep. that. And then meanwhile, Americans with privilege, and this is why I moved back to the States, is because you meet all these Americans that will just shit on the United States. And they they call themselves expats, which is another oh, dumb okay, term. Yeah. They're immigrants. <laughs> you weren't sent there by Hewlett-Packard. Like, it's not the, 19, <laughs> not the 1950s. You booked a flight. So you want to hide your money from taxes. Mm -hmm. And you want to live in a palace while making $50,000 a year. We get it. But that's at the expense of local culture that you're not going to pay attention to. So you're going you're gonna to sit there and say, I have friends. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's Canadian, and he's always talking about American politics. And he lives in Panama. Right? And, he's, and he goes hard against the right in America. And I asked him the other day, I said, what do you know about local Panamanian politics? Abortion, universally illegal in Panama. Mm -hmm. Gay marriage, universally illegal in Panama. Marijuana, jail. Not ticket, jail. So it's a, it's it's a right-wing conservative's wet dream. But if you're a <laughs> liberal person and you're shitting on the right-wing agenda here, I'm going, brother... The most rural part of Alabama, the heart of Trump country, is more liberal than the most liberal section of Panama like City. Focus Panama. on your backyard, so bro, good. before and you your <laughs> cognitive dissonance is telling you it's not. Yeah. Yeah. American politics is our most popular exported sport. <laughs> Damn. It's true. That's really good. Yeah. yeah. I, true. I, I, even here, like, I watch politics for entertainment. Like, there's races I couldn't care less about, but it's like yeah. some Montana person punches a journalist. Right. And <laughs> what, what effect is that going to have on the polls? I'm interested. I want to know how this is going to go. Well, the, Ro the Roe versus Wade thing was a big thing for me, too, because, you know, as, as a, you know, Larry liberal, you know, I was, I freaked out and go, this is devastating. You know, this is devastating. All you know, my female friends are freaking out and going, this is wild. And then I start realizing I lived, I've just lived in countries where mm. it was universally illegal. And I never thought about it. I'm not a woman, so I don't have to think about it like that. And I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, even in a, the dark day of, of, mm. of getting rid of Roe versus Wade, it's still putting a lot of these states on par with Germany. Right. And France, these places we consider liberal. So the, um, America is way more liberal than people give it credit for. It's a yeah, weird it's, thing. Yeah, 100%. I have found that same exact thing when I was looking into the Roe versus Wade thing. I was like, okay, wait, like there was some law. It was like Florida had changed something or some state. And I was like, mm, let me look into this. And I realized, yeah, it's actually the same as France. Right. You know, relatively, whatever. There may be nuances, but like it's not... For a lot of the world, it's nowhere near as strict and repressive as, you know, many countries have abortion set for. And so there's this strange story. There's this narrative that you see people really indulge in. And I definitely was one of those people when I was younger um, because it was almost like cool to shit on the U.S. Yeah. Almost. It's very it cool. It was. You know, again, social capital is. in it. Yes. It's, and it's this more is than ever. Well, but it, it's, like, right. it, it's like that pretty girl syndrome in high school. Yes. All the ugly ones shit on the pop. Girl because uh, she's like, and that's, right. that's what the United States is. It's right. kind of like the same kind of syndrome. Like, oh, so let's right. just go on like bandwagon on this shit because you know what I mean. Like, right, right, get right. The fuck over. And I hate when I hear like Europeans doing it or whatever or the British because it's just like okay, like 
you can get like stop being <laughs> yeah, jealous like yeah. you could just stop talking about us or whatever like it's a bit much it's just because you can't stay why with are us why you so obsessed yeah. with us like it's my, very much that energy my favorite is when Europeans talk about uh, like hegemony in the United States and I'm going really really <laughs> really guy in Paris because there's a lot you know of countries in Africa that speak French right 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 <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> we didn't sail over there like you did so let, let's let's cool it down you know I know yeah. you hate George W. Bush right but like Mussolini wasn't a great guy either. So right. we can just kind of agree to disagree on that. <laughs> it is such a story and there's such a thing about it. I mean, you know what I think it is? I've realized this and I think it plays into a lot of like our current politics and why it's be it's become so divisive and so like kind of toxic in that way is that there is a mechanism by which hating the same things bonds you yeah, with certain true. people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? So it's like, it's not even so much about the problems. Like, granted, there are times where it's like, oh, this is really like a step backwards. We want to talk about it. And we, it's bad, whatever. Um, but it's almost like a sport to just shit on the United States and be like anti-patriotic. And in that, I think there is just, it's a fucking bonding thing that yeah. people are doing to kind of be like, where are my people at? Like, do you hate it? I hate it. And it's that's like, part of American party. privilege. Yes. Well, shit on Cuba yes. as a Cuban in the island. See right, what happens to you. Yeah, it's good not going to be fun. You're going to jail. You're disappearing yeah, you'll the find night. your party. You'll They're find, all yeah, in, in the same 100%. place, like behind bars. But the part push, of push back on that a little, it's, it works in the reverse too. So mm. being uh, anti-American is kind of addictive for a certain group of people, but also being overly patriotic is another one right. yeah. where I think there's a danger in just saying, uh, I love my country and whatever my country no does, what, yeah. I'm following it. And the Whoa. flag first. Extremes breed else extremes. Second. Right. Neither are healthy. Yeah. You, you have to look at it. I hate overusing the word nuance, but I'm obsessed with it because mm -hmm. everything is involves nuance. Yeah. It's so lacking today. Right. You yeah. can't say that everything in America is bad and everything is you have to focus on the things that appreciate the things that are good and not just for you, but for society. And criticize the things that you believe hurt society and yourself. And I think we have a bad habit of always looking at, through the lens of our own self preservation and say, well life is great for me, so I love it. But then when life is bad for me, I hate it. And then we're not looking at like the greater good of 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 our, starting with our communities, going out to states, going out to nations, and then going out to the world because we have a lot of power. And how we use that power, it becomes a lot of responsibility with that. And we've abused that for two cent, you know, time, yeah. a couple yeah. centuries now. Time, yeah. Mm. yeah, I think that, um, that that kind of makes me think of the black sheep concept again, which is just like it strengthens whatever group you're a part of if you're able to be nuanced about how you look at that group you know so that kind of um knee-jerk patriotism it's actually not good for your country that yeah. you supposedly love so much if you refuse to criticize something you refuse to improve it and so you can't actually defend and improve your country if you refuse to look at the flaws i mean and first of all you know if you're going to be that kind of like um you know, almost an idealist, patriotic person where you just refuse to admit that, like, actually, there have been some problems or we messed up here. You're actually going to miss out on opportunities to really kind of like get to the core of what your country was. For me, patriotism um it was not like when I started to appreciate the, my country, it's the same process of that you had, which is like, 
I went to a lot of other countries. I was like, oh, I don't like this. They don't even have AC over here. <laughs> I was shook. I was like in Prague and it was like not common to have an AC in some places. And I wasn't even in like not nice places. You can, you go to London, you go to Germany, they get these tiny little places. And like, we're here with these big houses because the country is just very big, you know? So we have things that I'm like, oh, I actually quite like some of the things that I thought like, oh, too bad I'm not living in like a cool 1800s castle type Guess building. Guess what? It's not that cool. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait a minute. I have central AC. Yeah. <laughs> like I kind of like some of these things that I took for granted as boring and lame and not interesting. Um, and, you know, of course, like a lot of the politics um, in terms of like free speech, the United States is just an incredible weirdo in terms it of is. free speech. Like, yeah, it's a black, the original black it sheep. It is such, oh my God. And this is why people hate on it. This is why like all of the world loves to hate on the United States because yeah. it's like a weird experiment. Yeah. Um, what did I say in the car? Yeah. yeah. It's such an interesting place in that way. And, you know, for me, when I was most like anti the United States, it's when I understood the least about it. Yeah. Like I had such a like low knowledge of history um and to me i just gave no credit to american history i was just like they're all dead racists we don't need to know anything about them <laughs> yeah that's kind of what they tell you in school too yeah man they're and all like, just dead racists like it's dusty anyway it's like george washington did this war and i'm like oh my god i'm gonna kill myself this is yeah. so boring that guy is so boring and it's like no actually like if you <laughs> empathize with these figures and it's like Bro, imagine being like they were like twenty. And they're like, I'm gonna start a country. What? The Yo, they were fuck? literally in the twenties. Like that's <laughs> yeah, crazy. crazy. They were literally in their fucking twenties. They're like thirty. They're I was like out doing Bali and space in my twenties. Like. I was not doing shit about shit. And they're like, let's start a country. Like, let's start up. I'm not gonna pay these taxes. Let's riot. Let's start. What these let's people rebel. were lit. Fuck you, England. <laughs> these people were so interesting and lit. Yeah. And you know, and of course, like they still had their their deep flaws. Like you look at a lot of their <laughs> yeah, old let's quotes. Let's use free la free labor to build it on. Right, right. It's a little caveat there. Yeah, uh, let's start a country and enslave people. Right, like, right. And it's like, well, gosh, that's bring so. A few eggs. Well, <laughs> but but the American kidding. Revolution was actually a very anti-slavery revolution. I mean, we can't forget that there was slavery in the British colonies That's before the revolution. Point, yeah. it, was, uh, it was upon achieving independence that Northern states were for the first time allowed to ban slavery. So Vermont, I know, did it immediately upon gaining independence. So that was not allowed under the British colonies. So, right. uh, so actually that revolution was a huge step forward for abolition. Well, slavery, the, the other thing about slavery yeah. too, uh, similar colonialism is that, you know, like as Billy Joel said, we didn't start the fire, right? <laughs> um, we, we look at it, oh, we have recency bias for that. So it's like, we go, okay, slavery ended in the United States, you know, a, less than 200 years ago. And uh, colonialism in the United States has really never truly existed. It kind of exists through proxies and stuff like that. There are bullshit wars and things. But if you look at all over the world, colonialism's always existed and slavery has always existed mm -hmm. slavery predates the greeks and the romans and all, so yeah. we still does create, too. right yeah. uh, there's still slavery in, in a, a lot. lot of parts a yeah. lot of parts of the world mm -hmm. even here uh you know different not forms. slavery but different you're right forms, yeah. sex trafficking i think yeah, is a yeah. form right. of slavery um and so it's hard to talk about i'm using slavery as an example but a lot of things in america a lot of our flaws and our evils we inherited mm. and we are just the modern Roman Empire, so we're getting all the attention now. And eventually, that will shift off, right? And I don't know, who knows how many hundreds of years or decades, yeah. but it's that's how it goes. You know, and if it was a thousand years ago and we we're having this conversation, it would be about a different yeah. society pushing the different evils. So I think it's important when you're talking about American privilege and things that we love about the country, 
Uh, it's also important to take it in context. Of like, okay, but we did a lot of evil shit. Doesn't mean like the, what we did in the past doesn't negate good that we do in the future. On the contrary, like if anything, it strengthens that. It's worth celebrating even more because it's like, look how far we've come. As long as we acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, no, you dis- have to. When we dismiss it is when we really start doing a disservice to right. Americans because then you start alienating Americans and that's where you have sort of an ideological, not to get back to the word oppression, but you're like, I'm just going to totally dismiss and ignore your history or right. your struggle. Yep. And, and that's, that's something we, you know, with immigration – so brilliant about America is that you get to see so many layers of that. It's how many generations of immigrants are there that 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 transform into a different type of America over time and how they create how they assimilate to the culture and then they create subcultures that actually become American cultures. Yeah. Chinese food in New I grew up in New York City is as American as as New York City as any other New York City thing. And it, it, it is so far removed from the, the founding of New York City. Right. But that is our heart and soul. It's part of our culture. And, and that's American culture. It's the biggest city in America, and, and, and people know that. So I, I think that, you know, with all of the, the immigrants, with all the different thoughts and different ideas, we can kind of create a culture out of subcultures and create good out of that that's not necessarily based on our traditional values. Mm. There's a uh, a play from 1908 called The Melting Pot, which is, you know, where that phrase comes from. And um, the idea of the melting pot has been, like, very denigrated um, for decades now, where it's like, no, it's a salad ball or, or certain other metaphors where we're all together and there's multiculturalism, but, um, you know, all the pieces are separate and they're supposed to stay separate. And if you read this play, and I, I really encourage everybody to go and read it, it's free online, it's like well out of copyright, and it is one of, it is a forgotten masterpiece. I mean, it is just an, an amazing piece of work, but you get to watch, you know, this this. New York in the immigrant era where everybody was like learning from each other and adopting the neighboring groups like cultural patterns and all that sort of stuff and it was happening very slowly but it dreamed of this future where all these amazing cultural elements you know we toss the bad there's a lot of bad and very many cultures, not all cultures are equal, but we For kept sure. the good of everybody and we yeah. would keep new cultures would keep coming in and add to the pot and I mean, it's just the most beautiful thing, and it's what I think America has that I love about America that other countries don't have. But it's so unpopular right now. That it's I amazing do. that that's unpopular too, but, because that's quintessentially American. But you know why that works? Because that was organic. It wasn't pushed on right. anyone. Yes, they coexisted and cohabitated on their own accord, and they learned and they fought on their own through decades, yes. and it wasn't push down anyone's throat you guys have to live together and be happy and peaceful it's good for everyone's good like you know what i mean like it would just organically happen and develop and that's what's so amazing about this play is it just it visualizes that so well where even just a couple years after that play came out like the term melting plot was um taken by other people and really used in the wrong way like Mm -hmm. one was henry ford who you know would have like these schools where they would americanize people and uh, their graduation ceremony would use this this melting pot idea where you know the immigrants would walk through in like their cultural clothes and then they'd come out oh walk God. through a melting pot and come out all wearing suits wa- like waving American flags <laughs> and and you know that phrase 
got destroyed, like meaning what you're saying. And, um, but in this play, you watch these groups just, they realize they're hostile to it at first, right? The, the main characters in the play are, are it's a Jewish family. Mm-hmm. And there's all these like traditions that they've taken back from Eastern Europe, um, keeping the Sabbath and like certain other things. And the, the main character, he wants to move forward. He wants to merge, right? And the grandmother, you know, wants to keep the traditions and doesn't want to go to see, he's, he's a composer, his concerto that's, you know, going to be on the Sabbath. But by the end of the play, she realizes, you know, oh, this is so important that I'm going to figure out how to make this work. Like, I will walk that far on the Sabbath if I have to, to hear him play music, which he's not supposed to play. You know, on on that day, you're not allowed to play to play music uh, under Orthodox Judaism on on the Sabbath, um, and you, you watch that also. He, this main character, he falls in love with a a Russian woman who, you know, they pogromed the the Jews, you know, back in Russia, and she puts that away and and merges and adopts some of like his family's tradition, and it's it's just so it's so beautiful, and I just want people to read it. I love that. The melting pot is called. Yeah, because you just watch this happen organically. They just realize through the nature of all being in a community mm-hmm. together that to they're work, better together, off yeah. if they if they learn from each other and work together and adopt what's good from their neighbors. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, this is why I think like some of the the explosion of identity politics in the way in the way that we know now which is like people being primarily identified as whatever like group identity they are versus like an individual first and then whatever parts of your culture or influence or history that you have can be then considered after that Mm -hmm. um you know identifying people first by these like group identity markers really tends to cause division and it, it undoes that it alienates people because it's like, I have to look at you then like in this example of the Russian woman, I don't look at you as this individual who happens to be of Russian descent. I look at you as the the vector of Russian history and aggression <laughs> yeah. upon my people. Yeah. So, and you know, it yeah. really kind of like is the opposite of that beautiful Romeo and Juliet story of like, yes, I have my family here. Yes, I have my history here and these things are behind me and they are influences, but we are just here and we as individuals can freely choose how we're going to treat each other and interact in this moment and moving forward. And so it's like, you know, I see how that that kind of impetus to identify each other first by our groups as being the primary factor. It's dangerous. There's a blueprint to the danger of that too if you study history of anywhere where identities really, beyond the political, you know, spectrum, culturally, if identity is the first thing that you judge people on, and that's how you group yourselves together. You know, that's that's how societies break down. Yeah. That's how wars happen. If you look at a lot of the you know uh, religious with the Balkans, even like uh, in our in our time, but keep going back, keep going back. When we're obsessed with identity, it it makes us lazy to explore other parts of human nature, and therefore we're automatically going to pin ourselves against each other because you you don't belong to my identity. Therefore, I can. Ex- we can be friends, but you're never going right. to, you're not me, right? So it's yeah. easier to be, be enemies than to be friends. Whereas if you identify with deeper things, you, you start to spread out, it's going to sound corny, you spread out the love, you spread out the empathy, you spread out the understanding. No, it's real. That's the thing. I think it's like we're so like 
blackpilled as a culture or whatever that like every time we talk about these true things of like the melting pot it's so nice to see people as individuals first we can connect people like oh my god you know but (laughs) you know that reality is terrible didn't you know the history about this and like there's this idea that cynicism is somehow intellectual and enlightened and it's like you're so smart you're miserable yeah you're so smart you alienate yourself cynicism Mm -hmm. is one of the worst things ever i I discovered happy i i I really discovered discovered happiness happiness. (laughs) when i started dropping cynicism next level of enlightenment honestly it's yeah. that simple i tell people this all the time they go oh, like happiness right. is there at the bottom you just gotta brush the cynicism cynicism's funny right so it's it's, yeah. it's healthy to be a little you know as, as a new yorker it's it, you gotta be a little cynical right, right just right. To keep your edge but if you actually <laughs> internalize cynicism as a worldview yeah you become a real piece of shit yeah and, you start and you're like you can't love if you're a mm-hmm. if you're a 24 7 cynic you're gonna go okay Oh, this person's sweet, but dot, dot, mm-hmm. dot. Or this is a cool job, but, 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 but. Or Miami's cool, but, blah, blah, blah. It's always a but, and you never open yourself up to higher thinking mm-hmm. and to higher vibrations of love, understanding, empathy, respect. Cynicism, sorry, you triggered me, because cynicism, <laughs> I'm like on a... On a Go for on it. A I'm, not, I want to get rid of cynicism. I'm on the same crusade. I want to keep the 2%, so I'm funny at parties. Right. Uh, and 98%. <laughs> Fuck off, cynicism. Right, right. You can take my New Yorker card away from me. I haven't lived there in 25 years. <laughs> what did that cynicism look like for you, and how did you get to the point where you were able to recognize that it was a problem in yourself? Um, starting to be less selfish, right? So I, I recognized it when I would notice how other people would react around me. Uh, and one, like, really watershed moment was I was talking to a friend, and, you know, I, I would just manifest cynicism in being a contrarian but in a mean, funny way. So someone would talk about the work they're doing or a movie, and I would always find a flaw and something stupid about it. And it's like, because it made me laugh and it, and it made me feel better about myself. And I realized it's just weak. It's weakness. And I had one friend who told me, I just internalized it as my personality for so long. I had a friend once, once looked me in the eye and said, I don't want to disagree with you ever. I said, why? I said, because it's not worth the energy and you know, I'm, I get scared. Like, what do you mean scared? He goes, people are afraid to, t- to disagree with you. I'm like, why? He goes, because you just eviscerate them. Oh, that's so interesting. And it shook, it like shook me to my core. Cause Damn. I'm like, wow. you're afraid to talk to me. And yeah. I'm sitting my selfish mind, you know, I'm, I'm the oh, main man. character and I'm going, I'm this funny motherfucker. I got all these people around me and I'm like, no, you guys only want to be around me when I'm not cynical. When I'm cynical, you're scared. Like, I don't want to make people scared, not physically scared, but like they just closed off. Yeah. yeah. Closed off, yeah. And they're like, yeah. no, because they don't want to always... deal with it. And yeah. then I'm like, that is just, that's just so ridiculous. I'm like, no, I want my ideas to have impact. I want my friends to, to, to challenge me. I want my friends to feel comfortable saying things to me without me judging them. Mm. And then, so it started with that. And then I, go well, this is kind of addictive and start applying that to everything <laughs> right, right. and go okay i'll listen to your music if i don't mm-hmm. like it i don't like it but i i respect that you listen to it i have a friend who's into astrology mm-hmm. i think astrology is fucking horseshit hey, 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 hey. <laughs> but i start listening to what she thinks about astrology and going you know what i can see i can see it i can see not only why you like it i can i can see why i can actually get down with a little bit of this right I can get down with a little bit libertarianism. If you had asked me <laughs> when I was in college to sit in front of a bunch of libertarians to talk, my first thing would go, libertarianism is horseshit. <laughs> doesn't work. Thanks, guys. Great podcast. <laughs> you guys are fucking dumb, full of shit. You know, utopianism. Fuck you. Go Al Gore, right? You know, and then but that, where do cool. I get with that? Then right. you just sit in the car and go, let's fucking ask. 
asshole. Just strolled in and did that. <laughs> so getting rid of cynicism allows me to go, you know what? You you make great points. You make great points. I don't agree. I'm gonna, somebody's going to write me and say, I'm not friends with you anymore based on what mm. I'm saying on this podcast right now. And I'm okay with that. Because I don't want to be around people that think like that. 100%. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. Fuck that. That's oh my beautiful. God, I'm so Nobody has room for that shit. Oh. So it's funny because we're talking about unity and lack of cynicism and love and melting pots. But you actually wrote a piece about American divorce, national divorce. Yes. So I really want to get into that on, on, as the last topic before we wrap up. Um, and I know there's conflicting ideas around the table about <laughs> national divorce. Uh, most people think that that would never work, but you were a black sheep about it and you wrote some. Well, I think the, the biggest thing there is that that seemed like a logical pivot to you mm -hmm. in that moment where people make the assumption that national divorce has something to do with Separation. that we don't like each other right. or something like that. Of course, that may be the case of real divorce. Let's get it on the table. National divorce is a euphemism for secession. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this America becoming multiple countries and whatever pattern that they may take. Um, and I see so much of the hostilities that we're having towards each other in this country as driven by the fact that we're in one polity together. And in one what together, sorry? Polity, a, a political body. Gotcha. So, okay. so the idea that if somebody else achieves 51% in our you know, so-called democracy, mm -hmm. then they can have control over my life and change everything that I do. Um, and that makes people react with real hostility and, and defensiveness. And, and I don't think that's good. So what I would like to see and, and what I think the proposal for national divorce is, is really about is it's one for how can we all get along together better separately um yeah like divorced parents yeah oh i'm sorry there, there, there is one difference in national divorce and secession which okay. is what national divorce um implies is that is, this is a peaceful separation it's not a um, it's a mutual, it's not it's a a mutual breakup right yes. <laughs> yeah. right right so it's it's peaceful secession specifically um and so i think doing that and just letting people go their own ways politically while recognizing like you know we'll travel into each other's countries, we will share culture with each other, we will trade with each other, we will all be on this continent together, but we won't control each other. I think that's about getting along. That's a solution to the fact that we're not getting along right now, rather than making it worse and being some devastating, you know, like final scenario where it's just, oh God, we just fell apart because we couldn't get along. You know, how horrible we're going to be at war forever. I, I, it's not that, but I think that's how people are primed to see it. Well, what are some of the implications of it? And I'm asked this generally because I, I have no idea. Like, I, I don't know how that could go south. Or maybe you know, I don't know. Like, I have a million ways that could go south, but... It could go south. Uh, I I think most historical examples show it not going south. Like which um, ones? Uh, the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, Sweden and Norway, oh, Iceland true. and Denmark, most colonial bodies that split from their colonial ruler. Um, yeah, those. Um, uh, obviously, there's situations like the Balkans, which are horrible and where it's a war, right? But those wars start in situations where 
one of the bodies isn't going to let the other body go, right? So the whole idea of advocating for national divorce is getting people to understand that this is a good idea, that we want to let each other go so that we don't get into one of those horrible, you know, warfare, you know, scenarios. So for me, when he first floated this idea to me, I was just like, that's not real. <laughs> like, that's one of those things that, like, libertarians that read a lot of books and, like, are really into, like, libertarian philosophy. Like, they have these ideas that it's like, that sounds great, but there's, that's not real. Like, that sounds like it would immediately It'll imply, never happen. It'll never work, yeah. Right. It would immediately imply all these terrible things. But he actually really convinced me about it um, in a very organic, real way that I was like, okay, yeah, every time I pose a counter argument to you, like, you have a really good answer that actually makes sense. And, uh... I don't have any more questions. But one thing that was helpful for me to understand it was like, wait, this is actually not necessarily like anti-United States. Because to me, I feel like the final goal in everything that we do is this kind of like um, voluntary unity. So I want in my relationships with people, in like my interactions, where it's like we end up on the same page, we end up connecting, and it's voluntary. You know, like, so when I think of national divorce initially, it was like, well, that's a failure. That's division. That's turning away. And that seems like antithetical to the United States, the United States. Like, isn't that what we're trying to do is to unite? And if we don't unite, isn't that a failure? Doesn't that mean like we're doing the opposite of what is the project of the United States? But what ultimately kind of changed my mind on that was realizing, wait, that's actually like would return us in some ways to what the original United States was, which is not having a massive federal government that influences all the states where it's like, you know, weed is still federally illegal. And point. it's like such a problem if you want to have it legal in this state versus illegal here. And if you could reduce that kind of overarching power and return power to kind of like the states, right? Which is in some ways a proxy for the for understanding the idea of what national divorce does, which is to shrink, like to let people kind of like, like power back to the states, which is a very understandable yeah, concept. The United States in its original form was more like um, the European Union. You know, it was a confederation of various states that had more independence. It was, in fact, you know, much less power in the central government than the European Union. I think the European Union has, has way too much power. Um, that was the Articles of Confederation government. That was how it was seen, it was, you know, a confederation of separate states. Um, you know, but then in uh, 1787, there was the Constitution, and much, much more power was brought into that um, central body. And what we've seen over the course of you know, the, what, 200 years, 250 years since, is um, just by the nature of there being one political body, just more and more and more power being drawn to that and less and less and less to the individual cities, counties, states. And, you know, I don't think that's had very good effects on our ability to live together peacefully no. with the fact that we all do have cultural and ideological differences. But I feel like if, if we, st like, the, the pragmatism and the kind of logistics of this to me is where I, 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 ideologically I get what you're saying, but the logistics seem, without better term, insane. Because how do you split resources, right? So if ideologically speaking, people in, in one state or one section of the country are like, we want to secede, 
what happens to the resources in that state? Let's say that Wh section. Which resources? I mean, most resources food. are private. Those are already privately owned. What I'm saying is, like, so it, to get food, like, let's say right now in the United States, yeah. to ship food from the Midwest to the East, there's no, you could, you could drive a truck from one way to the other. So yeah. let's say you have part of the United States that's really just ideologically at war with another, and they say we're going to close the border down. How do, how do people get food? Okay, well, the problem there is the closing the border down. I mean, we get food, and much of our food supply comes from Canada and Mexico. Um, so this is, this is already the case that so much food is shipped internationally. Um, but again, I mean, Europe, even like before the European Union, is also another example of food is like constantly crossing borders all over the world food crosses borders if until it doesn't though until ideologically there's a rift so if there are two countries that say that are like we really don't ideologically agree one of the ways one country can hurt the other is to shut down resources coming into that country uh, they can but it's it's wildly irrational to do so and so they don't i don't think there's a ton of examples of nations uh forcing themselves into starvation because they didn't want to trade with other nations except in like really extreme crazy governments like the Soviet Union, which was, you know, again, a massive state where because a certain ideology got power, it was able to enforce that power over everybody. And a national divorce scenario, especially where we have many smaller states, which I think is the ideal, not just two. Okay, if one state wants to go absolutely crazy and do horrible things, like shutting down their own food supply, um, at least that decision doesn't fall on everybody else. At least you can't have something like the Holodomor in mm -hmm. Ukraine. Um, instead, you know, they have a terrible thing. Eventually they have to relent and change because their terrible policies led to failure. And then the food routes around them, you know, to everybody else. Um, so so I, like I think that's so much worse, the problem you just laid out, under yeah. a centralized government than it is under many small states. So under centralized government, correct me if I'm wrong, up the poorer states benefit off of the tax, the taxes of the wealthier states yeah. currently. Yeah. So let's say Alabama secedes. Where does that money get replaced? Where, where private in, I mean, how, how do the people of Alabama fund their own public education, the roads, things like that, if they're not getting the taxes from the wealthier states shared, funneled through the federal government? Public education is, uh, I'm not a policy expert on this, but that's usually funded through property taxes. So maybe they're getting like mass, massive grants from the Department of Education that like I'm not well read on, but usually that's not like a major issue. Um, having said that, you know, as a broader point, um, you know, I don't think it's a good thing for certain regions to be stealing money from other regions. Um, that's not to me a... Plus, I want to see Alabama live within its means and not, its own, yeah. ta not take resources from other people to, if it's the case that that's Alabama is, is having it that way because of failing policies or something like that. Like, I don't want to see those failing po policies subsidized. But know? if those policies fail, those people will be driven out of there and now they're going to go to another place. So the Soviet Union yes, is a great Yes, that's example. great, though. That's, that's, that's a win. Right. Is that if there's, if there's bad policies, if there's many small states, it's much harder to do 
things like closed borders. You don't see that that often in like very small states. Um, they have to, they're forced. This is the case. This is why some people believe that Europe, which for you know a long time was a, a backwater compared to you know East Asia and other the Middle East, yeah, um, it advanced so fast and became the West became great. One of the things that it's believed helped that was they had much more political decentralization where China was like this massive political body, which didn't have internal political competition. And in Europe, there were all these little bodies that, well, they go to war sometimes, that's not good. But they had to trade with each other. People could leave and go to the other ones if there were problems. And they had to compete with each other um, for stability and um, to produce more. And so, you know, they became great. And I think that would work very well. That would work very well here too. So you're willing to, you're willing to sacrifice the weaker states, sacrifices in, let, let, them, let them fail on their own or let them succeed on their own. And then like whatever happens after that happens, right? So like, I think that, Rather, it provides places that aren't doing as well with the incentives to do better. And you would see more innovation and change, and it would lead to improvements everywhere. And then we all benefit from the trades that happen without anyone's rights being violated by oh, we're going to subsidize our failing policies that we have for whatever ideological reasons, even though, you know, they're not compatible with, you know, human flourishing by just taking and taking from other regions. I mean, in a real way, that's how the Soviet Union held on for so long with economic policies that were um, just frankly, like completely incompatible with reality was, you know, they could just keep robbing from people until there was nothing left and it eventually collapsed which which is true however i've been to the former soviet union mm. and parts that are no longer parts of the soviet union and most people in these places believe that life was better for them under the soviet union in other words that's true i've seen polling on that that's true in russia where russia was the center and you know political power of the soviet union my understanding is that that statistic does not hold in any other former Soviet nation? It held, where, it held where I was, but that's anecdotal. So it, I, I've been in I've been in Eastern Ukraine, mm-hmm. North North Central Ukraine, Western Ukraine, and Eastern Ukrainian culture. And this is a whole nother, <laughs> but uh, largely they I, they identify they're culturally Russian, but they identify more with they don't get enough they weren't getting enough from the Ukraine, and from during my time there, talking to other immigrants from other former Soviet countries, Kyrgyzstan. Um, uh, what was the other one? Uzbekistan, like places that are not necessarily uh, Kazakhstan's got oil, right? And some of these other countries don't have that. And so, if if when the Soviet Union broke up, they're in mountainous areas, they're double landlocked, so they're they're landlocked and they're bordered by other landlocked countries, and that centralized government going away leaves them with no resources. And so those people have two options: they either suffer in in dire poverty, or they emigrate out and so they start to leave and then they go back into russia they go into the united states they go into western europe and so it essentially just it doesn't uh it's not conducive to to innovation 
but it actually just drives the opposite way, where it goes, we're going to abandon this place because there's no, nothing left for us. Well, I'd want to understand better why they didn't have resources and to what extent is it policy decision is it a policy decision that's been taking away resources or is there just not the central economic planning policies that are taking from other places you know to provide to them I, I do think Ukraine and Russia are a very important example of national divorce right now and what you would do right and what you would do wrong as we might attempt to do that in the United States mm -hmm. um, you know I think, Ukraine's decision to give up its nuclear weapons in the 90s was a terrible decision. I think otherwise, clearly, they're so willing to fight for their independence yeah. that despite how costly it's been that you know Ukraine as a full body is extremely happy with their decision to national divorce from Russia. But you know I think there's the eastern Donbass region that should be allowed to go their own way as well, you know, if they w wish to do so. I know they held referendums to, to do so. I don't know how fairly or honestly those were held, but um, if, if true, then, you know, they should be allowed to do so, and we should not be having a massive war that could risk, you know, nuclear ca catastrophe over people wanting to leave, voting to leave, and join a, a different body they should do so i think that's a really interesting take and you honestly made me not convinced but definitely leaning more towards that you know this sounds terrible it'd be interesting to see how that secession let's say it breaks away into four pieces right the u.s how that influence then would be worldwide how would the world change as a as a byproduct of that happening but that's a whole other podcast <laughs> thank you all four of you for joining this has been an amazing conversation i wish i was a, a writer too because then i could name this the writer's block oh. <laughs> <laughs> um thank you again guys a very interesting conversation as expected um guys drop your handles if you guys want anyone to follow you guys go ahead salomon yeah follow me at salome sibone everywhere on twitter on instagram i am kind of on tiktok trying to figure out what to do over there <laughs> dance <laughs> trying, to, trying to be yeah, a dance, just dance <laughs> dance about national divorce i'll make like yeah. a tiktok dance about it <laughs> why we should states? divorce <laughs> iowa ohio <laughs> <laughs> yeah so stay tuned for that um and yeah that's that's it for me all right jake i'm at joseph j klein on at on twitter and that's also my website so josephjkline.com okay no substacks you guys want to plug or anything oh like? um my substack i'm changing the name because i'm going to launch black sheep the publication and i'm going to write specifically about that because right now my substack is named something different but people should go to my website to sign up for the newsletter there which is just my name and that has everything i've got like a really cool reading list also of the books that i'm very influenced by so that's a cool thing people can check out too and my old visual art is still there so that's a cool thing to peruse Hooray for art. <laughs> yeah yeah so um yeah find everything there and i don't have um you know a personal substack but i do have an account on substack because i'm a writer there so again same name joseph j klein and i will be co-editing black sheep so if you follow me you will see that content you get as lots well. more yeah, radical ideas <laughs> yeah you can follow me on instagram at andy jackson writes and my substack is andy jackson.substack.com beautiful again guys please like subscribe share do all the things for the podcast if you haven't already And that's it. So that's all we got for today. No se metan con nadie para que nadie se las meta. Have a good one.